Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms. If you would, please make your way back in. Make your way to your seats. And as you sit down, would you join me in prayer, asking the Lord's blessing on the preaching and the hearing of his word and our response to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so infinitely high above us, and yet you are graciously near to us. Would you be near to us now in your word, by your spirit, because of your son? We ask that you would move us, teach us, stretch our minds, stir our hearts. Would you strengthen our faith, change us and save us for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning with a paraphrase of a quote from St. Augustine in his book, The Confessions, saying that because God has made us for himself, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Or to say that another way, all people, and I don't mean that as mere exaggeration for effect, I mean all. Every single individual, all people are seeking for connection with God. Oh, though many don't so intend, they don't realize that's what they're after. See, all people are looking for rest and for peace and for meaning and purpose. They're looking for healing and love and life and joy. They're just looking often in the wrong places. Everyone is seeking for what only God can give. They're seeking for what only is in God. In fact, they're only seeking, they don't, they don't always realize it, for God himself. For only he can give their hearts rest and satisfy their souls. But the only way, the only way to connect with God is by the right response to his revelation. That's the only way to connect with God. You see, God is the creator. He is God infinitely high above us. So if we're to connect with him, he has to reach out to us. He has to speak to us, reveal himself to us. And then our job is to rightly respond to his revelation. What we must not do, however, because it is both wrong and destructive to ourselves and others. What we must not do is to seek to connect with God, to hear from God, to know God, to be reconciled with God, to receive God through any way other than what he has revealed in his word. Sadly, though, this is often what we do. And we do so, we try to connect with God through a thousand other means, often in different ways than he has revealed in his word, for one or two or maybe three reasons. Number one could be that we often lose sight of the fact that it is indeed God that we want. That it is God that we need. That it is God who alone can fulfill our heart's longings. That it is God alone who deserves our pursuit, our attention, our devotion, our allegiance, our love, our faith, our worship. We are like Eve in the garden. But our garden is not filled with all good trees, maybe with one forbidden tree in the middle. It's more like we are in a garden full of all forbidden trees with only one good tree 
And all the fruit looks the same. It all looks appealing. But actually some look shinier than others. More appealing than others. And we see with skewed vision when the deceiver deceives us. And we think that will satisfy. That will do it. If only I have this. If I can reach this. If one day I can obtain this or be like this. Then that will do it. But because God has made us for Himself, our hearts will be restless until it finds its rest in God. If you are hearing this message, know this. God is what you are after. God is what you want. God is the only one you need. And He's the only one deserving of your focused pursuit. But even if you can keep sight of this and hold on to this reality, perhaps you fall prey to the next error where we can lose the wonder of God speaking to us, revealing Himself to us through His Word. Perhaps never realizing or just not remembering as we ought to that through the revelation of God, we are meant to receive God. See, when God speaks, He communicates Himself. He reveals Himself. God's written revelation is His ordained means of us receiving Him by faith. He has spoken to us so as to give Himself to us that we might connect to Him. So many times people want to seek God, but they stray from this. And they do not find Him. But even if you can hold on to that, you know God is what you want and need and the only one who deserves your pursuit. And you know He comes to us through His Word. We can still lose our firm grip on and our unyielding commitment to the fullness of God's Word. Listen, that centers on Jesus. Since it is God that we want, since it's God that we need, since it's God that deserves our attention and focus, then we must seek Him, right? We must lean in to listen to Him. We must cling to Him and hold fast to Him in His Word, in His Christ-centered Word. That's what Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is telling us. That God has finally, fully, and perfectly, that He has most clearly and ultimately and supremely revealed Himself to us by His Son in His Christ-centered, Son-centered Word. And if we are to connect with God by rightly responding to His revelation, then we must see that His revelation is indeed focused on Jesus. If we receive God's Christ-centered Word, we receive Christ. And if we receive Christ, then we receive God Himself. Therefore, we ought to listen to and cling to and hold fast to God in Christ by listening to and clinging to and holding fast to His Word that centers on His Son. So we could say our phrase another way, that the only way to connect with God is by the right response to His Christ-centered revelation. Again, that's what Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is telling us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, please, the first two verses, or at least verse 1 on into the first part of verse 2. Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The writer 
that the book of, of the book of Hebrews is telling them and telling us that they need what we need is to receive God's revelation, both the New Testament and the Old, that centers on Jesus. That He's been changed, that, that, that the world has been changed because of Jesus. That indeed the entire course of history has been altered because of Jesus. We all have those moments in our lives, don't we? That, you know, those moments that divide your personal history. That you could say, all your life is really divided up into before the diagnosis and after. Before the surgery and after. Before that loss and after. All of life is there. Or maybe it's in positive ways. That it's, all of life is divided up into before you met that person or after. Before you had your children or after. Before you graduated or got that job or whatever it is. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that all of those may be well and fine, but the supreme way we ought to divide history centers on Jesus. And, and, and primarily, look what he does here. He says, long ago, God spoke. That was in all previous times. Up until this time, God spoke. But He didn't speak by His Son. And now, He has spoken by His Son. That's how He divides history. He divides history by how and through whom God has spoken. Well, why does He do that? How God speaks and through whom He speaks, why is that so monumental? And it is indeed monumental. Listen to what He says here in verse 2. But in these last days... That doesn't mean just the most recent days. And it's not speaking of the final end of time. It's a technical phrase speaking of the final epoch of history. As one commentator said, it's not here in this phrase, these last days, speaking so much to how much time we have left, but what kind of time we're in. This is a new era, a new era of history. It's the final stage inaugurated by Jesus, most specifically by His death, resurrection, and ascension. This is the age of the new covenant, wherein all has been purchased by the blood of Christ. All has been sealed by the Spirit of Christ, and all has been secured by the risen and ascended reigning Christ. In the old order of things, before these last days, God spoke. But it was at many times and in many ways, which suggests that it was a partial revelation. A fragmentary revelation, a progressive revelation, never full. It was no less God speaking. It was no less divine or authoritative or true. And it was not really an altogether different message. No, this Old Testament truth, this Old Testament revelation of God is wonderful. It is amazing and we should dare not unhitch ourselves from it. And yet, it was incomplete. Always meant to be so. One commentator likened it to going to see a five-act play. You see the first four acts, and there's so much constant struggle and turmoil. You'll see problem after problem and promise after promise of resolution. And you get to the end of the, the fourth act, and it ends on a cliffhanger, and you go to intermission. And what you don't do is say, man, those four acts were terrible because there was no resolution. There wasn't intended to be. You know that. They were great because they were building up to the climax. And you don't also say, well, now it's intermission, let's go home. No, you say, i got to hear the rest. 
I need the fifth act. I need the final word. Beloved, Jesus is the final word. He has come and it culminates in him. But why is the author of Hebrews telling us all of this? What does he want us to do in response? Simply, he wants us to listen. To listen to Jesus. To cling to him. To hold fast to Jesus. But why? Why ought we listen to him? Why is God speaking to us by his son any different from when he spoke by the prophets? Why is God speaking to us by his son any better than when God spoke through his prophets? It's not, the message through God's Son is uh, not more true. It's not more authoritative. It's not more God. It's the same. The difference is, is that this is full and clear and final. And this full, final, clearest message, this ultimate revelation of God is superior in that way and such that it requires a superior messenger to communicate it. Well, who could do this? Who could give this revelation of God? It could only be Jesus. Because only Jesus is God's appointed prophet, priest, and king. The one in whom and by whom we connect with God. And in this way, Jesus is superior. And when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is superior, when he says that he's greater, when he says he's better, he does not mean that Jesus is better than others simply, or even that he is the best, better than all others. As though we can have, well, we have, you know, Abraham and Moses and David and then Jesus. That's not his point. Or, you know, you can have Muhammad and Joseph Smith and you can have, you can have the Pope and then you can have Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is so much better, so much superior, That every other prophet, every other voice, every other priest, every other king either supports and exalts Jesus or they are rendered obsolete, insufficient, or a fraud. When we say that Jesus is the superior Savior, we're not saying that He's simply a better Savior. We're saying that He is the only Savior, exclusively so. Jesus Himself said it. I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one connects to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't go back. You can't go back to Judaism. You can't go back to Mormonism. You can't go back to Jehovah's Witness. You can't go back to anything else. You can't go to the side to anyone else or anything else because you cannot get to God except through this Christ-centered revelation of His Son. And in order to bolster this exhortation to seek to connect with God by rightly responding to His Christ-centered revelation, in order to support His exhortation, His urging to listen to Jesus, to cling to Him, to hold fast to Him, to hold fast to God in Christ by listening to His, His Word that centers on Jesus, the writer of Hebrews proves the superiority of Jesus as prophet priest, and king. First, he shows us how he is the superior prophet in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. Again, Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. When we read that God has spoken by his son, we should hear that this is the full and final, the, the clear and complete, the ultimate, the superior revelation of God. And before the last days, in all days prior, in the first part of history, in all the first four acts of history, 
God spoke. He spoke wonderfully, gloriously, revealing himself in the messages of the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken not only in the message of Jesus, that is in his teaching, but also in the person of his son. So that you see, Jesus wasn't just the communicator of the message of God. He is the message of God. It focuses on Him. He is the very subject matter of it. So that when it says that God spoke by His Son, we should also hear that He spoke in His Son and about His Son in this Christ-centered revelation. And that's not just in the New Testament. All of it is about Him. Every Old Testament prophet, not just Moses to Malachi, but really from Adam to John the Baptist... From every person who, to whom God spoke and through whom God spoke, they gave the message of God, but Jesus is the message of God. The message of Hebrews, indeed the message of the entire Bible, centers on and culminates in Jesus. Who He is, what He has done, what He's doing, and what He has promised yet to do. Amen. Jesus, as the prophet, the superior prophet, is the ultimate revelation of God. And as the superior prophet, Jesus wasn't merely used by God to reveal God. Jesus was. Indeed, Jesus is God. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The reason Jesus could so perfectly reveal God in Himself is because of who He is. The prophets of old were honored reflectors of the glory of God, but Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. It radiates out from within Him, having the same nature, the being of the same essence of the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is a man. And Jesus is God. He uniquely is the God-man. Therefore, Jesus is not like any other rabbi. He's not like any other teacher, any other leader, any other pastor, any other prophet. He's in a category all by Himself. Therefore, we should listen to Him and cling to Him and hold fast to Him alone. Oh, that we would see more clearly. That we would understand more deeply. That we would adore and love and delight and worship Him more fully. As this God-man who reveals God perfectly in Himself. But once we see Him, then we see ourselves. Once this holy God reveals Himself, He also reveals us. And we see that He is holy and that we are not. We already knew that though, didn't we? In the light of His absolute purity, we see our corruption and we learn that, the only, that, it's, that what's hindering us, what's keeping us from connecting with God is not just the absence of knowledge, but the presence of our sin. And there's no way through. It's an unbridgeable chasm. It's a, it's a wall that can't be breached. Praise the Lord. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And the Lord has spoken. And what He has spoken in His Son is a purifying and reconciling revelation such that Jesus is not only the superior prophet, but also the superior priest. Look at the third part of verse 3. It says, After making purification for sins, He sat down. The sinless Son of God made purification for sins. How do you purify sin? 
How do you cleanse? How do you wash that thing which stains deep into our souls? Jesus did it in himself. It's a middle voice here in the Greek, which means that he did it himself. Unlike the priests of old and before the last days, they would make purification temporarily by offering a sacrifice of a ram or a lamb or a goat or a bull of some kind. It had to be unblemished and pure, but they would offer it. But you see, Jesus offers up himself. He's the priest who offers a sacrifice and he is the sacrifice. For only the stains of his blood can wash the sinner clean making them acceptable and forgiven. And this same blood, the same purification, the same superior Savior, not only makes His people positionally pure before God, but also practically pure on an ever-increasing basis, changing us from within. And this has been secured by Jesus. And one day... One day, we will be free. Thursday morning, as we were at the hospital with Lindsay's grandmother, I remember thinking, What a joy, what a glorious gift she has just received. That she entered into the first day of being sinless, of being perfectly pure, of experiencing the fullness of what Jesus purchased for her. The Son of God made purification for sin. He did it for unworthy sinners. What grace is this but amazing? God speaks. He speaks by His Son and in His Son a word of forgiveness, a word of cleansing, transforming power. We ought to, or we must. We must listen to and cling to and hold fast to Him for there is purification. There is forgiveness. There is freedom in no one else, nowhere else, and from nothing else but Jesus, the Son of God. And don't you love what it says Jesus did after He made purification for sins? Look at verse 3 again at the end. After making purification for sins, He sat down. He sat down. Why? Because He completed His work. There was no chair in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the holy place or the most holy place. Because the priests had to continually be doing this work over and over and over again every day for themselves and for everybody else. And it was never done. Jesus came. He sat down and smiled and said, It is finished. He made purification. It's all done. He sat down. But notice where He sat down. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high the right hand of the king. Jesus is not only a superior prophet and superior priest, he is the superior king. Sitting down, 
the right hand of the King on high, the majesty. Look at verse 2. In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He, that is the God the Father, appointed Jesus, the heir of all things, to be over all things. Then He sat down on high, verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name He inherited is much more excellent than theirs. The prophets of old were sometimes graciously granted to sit with kings. But Jesus is justly seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, himself becoming the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. But did you notice the language I just used? You notice the language here in the text? It says, he became. He didn't sit down until after He didn't sit down to be this reigning king until after he made purification for sins. Verse 2, it says, He was appointed the heir of all things. I thought we just got finished saying in verse 3 that he is God himself. How is it that he became king? How is it that he was appointed later and then inherited a name so excellent and a position so high? Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, we will read in chapter 2 of Hebrews, was granted an exalted status. And so he received a superior name, that name being the Son of God, which he was declared to be so with power, Romans tells us, according to the Spirit who raised him from the dead. He was given a superior position and a superior inheritance above all. As the God-man, Jesus was first in a state of humiliation. You know the Christmas story when He was born and laid in a manger to a young teenage girl and a poor carpenter. He was not heralded to kings but to shepherds. And so in His state of humiliation, He did not yet have what He would later receive by His sinless life of love, and by His sacrificial, obedient death on the cross, Jesus earned His inheritance. His Father didn't have to die for Him to be appointed the heir. Jesus had to die to become the heir. He earned His inheritance because His exaltation did not merely come after His humiliation. It came because He embraced that humiliation unto death, even death on the cross. So Jesus has earned the rightful place of being king of the universe over all things. And he had therefore earned our attention, our focus, our devotion, our faith, our love, our worship, and our obedience. As we learn in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, speaking of Jesus, and being found in human form, in his humbled form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him this God-man, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you give it to him? He is the king, but he is he enthroned on your heart? Do you say, yeah, I mean, there's Jesus. He's cool, I guess. Or do you bow your knee and confess before 
not just in private, but before others, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That He is your connection to God because He is God. Do you worship Him as King? He's the only one worthy of it. He is the superior King. The only one able and worthy to connect us to God. But what does it mean that He has such a superior name and position inheritance? That Jesus is the heir of all things, notice, means at least that He is to receive glory from all things, being the worthy center of all things. That He is the heir of all things at least means that He is the ruler over all things, having the authority over all creatures. That He is the heir of all things means that He is the giver of all good things, all blessings, all truth, all judgment, all salvation. And yes, He even gives God Himself to all who will listen to, cling to, and hold fast to Him, rightly responding to this Christ-centered revelation of God. Jesus is the one we want. Jesus is the one we need. Jesus alone is the one who deserves our attention and our pursuit and our focus. Our connection to Jesus is our connection to God. And you know what's amazingly just mind-blowing? Jesus has earned the right to have all things in His possession. And then He says, come. And I want to share it all with you. In Romans 8, 17, it says that we, by faith in Jesus, become fellow heirs with Christ. What does He receive? All things. So what do we receive? We are heirs of God. And He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us what? All things. We deserve nothing but judgment. And He has promised us all things good. So yes, why we ought to, because He is the King. We ought to praise Him with our lips and honor Him with our lives and exalt Him in our hearts. But He always outgives us. Gives us more than we could ever give Him. And in fact, as we are being exhorted over and over and over again through this book of Hebrews to listen to Jesus, to cling to Him, to hold fast to Him, He is the one who holds on to us. He upholds the universe. Literally in the Greek it says He upholds, I love it, all things. He upholds all things simply by the word of His power. That is by His powerful word, His powerful decree. If He decides it to be and exist and continue, it does. And this includes us. He upholds us. He preserves us. He carries us. He prevents us from falling. And I don't just mean by our mere existence is is kept. If you are His by faith, He keeps you believing. He keeps you following Him. He keeps you loving Him. He keeps you repenting again and again and again to say, No, Jesus, I'm sorry. All glory to you. He preserves you. And I love this word here for this word for carry. It doesn't just have the idea that He just keeps you static. It's that He keeps you and holds you and carries you forward to your intended goal, which is God's intended goal to keep you centered on Christ until you receive with Jesus the glory of God in all things for your good. 
by His divine, and by that I mean His perfect and unalterable decree of what should be, of what must be, and what shall be done, Jesus holds us fast. He who began a good work, He will always be faithful to complete it. He's both the author, Hebrews says, and the perfecter of our faith. We are kept in Jesus by the power of God and therefore because of all of this and more, or so much more, we ought to listen. We ought to cling to Jesus and hold fast to Him by listening to and clinging to and holding to the Word that centers on Him. Receive God's Christ-centered Word and you receive Christ. Receive Christ and you receive God Himself and all the blessings therein. And if I may, there is one more declaration about Jesus giving proof, giving a solid ground and a motivation, reason for why we ought to cling to Jesus and hold fast to Him. It's found in the second part of verse 2. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Being God, Jesus was and is Eternal, self-existent, and He was the agent of all creation. He made you. He made you. And He made me. He made everyone. And He made us in His own image that we would glorify and enjoy Him fully and forever. Or as St. Augustine might say, because He has made you for Himself, your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in Him. So do not reject Him. Do not neglect Him. The only one who can bring you to God, the only one who can connect you to God, your Creator, whom your heart longs for, whom your soul needs. The only one who is worthy of your pursuit. So I exhort you, I urge you to listen to the Son, to cling fast to Him, to hold tightly to Him by rightly responding to this Christ-centered revelation of God. I'm going to close by reading <clears throat> somewhat of a parallel passage in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. <clears throat> Speaking of Jesus, it says that He is the image of the invisible God. You want to connect with God? You can't see Him. But Jesus is that image. He reveals God you. He's the firstborn of all creation, that is, being the heir over all creation. For by Him, all things, don't you love the language, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Here it is again, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, in time and in rank, and in Him, all things hold together by the word of His power. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything that is in all things, He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell as He radiates God's glory. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 
Robert Murray McShane once said that for every look we look at ourselves in our own sin and unworthiness, we ought to take ten looks at Christ. What a privilege we get in the book of Hebrews to have hundreds of looks at Christ. May we look and may we stare, may we savor what we see. But you can only do that by first rightly responding to the Christ-centered revelation of God in His Word. We have to humbly repent, turn to trust in and treasure Jesus above all things because He is the heir of all things. And if you're not doing that, if that's not where you're at yet, I urge you to listen to Him. To cling to Him by faith. To hold fast to this Son of God. And to do it now. Come and talk to me or one of the other pastors. Or put it on a connection card on the back of one of the seats in front of you. And say, I need, I need, I need to, I want to know more. I know that I am longing to connect with God and I need help. And it would be our genuine pleasure to talk to you more about it. But I also urge you, if this is where you're at, is to stay where you are. When others come to partake of communion, just to stay where you are and pray. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart to Him. And if you are trusting in Jesus and treasuring Him, and you've had your faith, your faith in Jesus affirmed by other Christians in, by being baptized in a local church, then in just a moment you can stand and exit to your left and come up to one of these tables and grab these communion elements with the gluten-free being to your far left and go back to your seats taking these elements of this bread and this juice that represents the, the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ by which He made purification for your sins. And ask Him to help you to make much of Him. To see Him. To savor Him as the superior prophet, priest, and king who gives Himself to you that you might connect with God. Let's pray. Gracious and all-giving God, help us to bow before You, to bow before Your Son. Jesus, You are King. You are the prophet who reveals the truth, who reveals God. You are the priest who saves, who cleanses, who changes us. You are the king who rules all for the good of your people. Help us to praise you, to hold fast to you. Continue to do your work in all and only for your glory, we pray. Amen.